Our call to worship today is found in Psalms 57, uh, verses 7 and 8, and you can find it in your Pew Bible on page 530. Psalms 57, verses 7 and 8, and it goes, My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. The Old Testament reading today comes from Second Chronicles, um, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And your pew Bible is found on page 408. The Spirit of God came on, on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without God, without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord and the God of Israel and sought, the, and sought him. And he was found by them. In those days, it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in a great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another and one city by another because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong and do not give up for your work will be rewarded. The first New Testament reading can be found in James chapter five, verses seven through 11, uh, found in your pew Bible on page 1120 and 1121. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting or the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the names of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The second reading is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, in your pew Bible on page 1096. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teachings you received from us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, we, are not, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. 
We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Before I go straight into the sermon this morning, I would just to point to you uh, the cover of our bulletin this morning, which is something that should be familiar to us. It is that landmark Veterans Memorial over here in Newhall, near Hart Park. And um, I wonder if we could just have our veterans stand for just a moment, please. Would our veterans among us please stand this morning? We have a number of distinguished veterans. We want to acknowledge you and remember that Monday is a sacred day for all of you. And uh, I would invite the congregation at this time to please express their thanks to our veterans and pride. Thank you, men and women of service. We uh, owe a great debt to you all. And if you read my letter this morning, there's a paragraph dedicated to you in there as well. And I want to thank Melody for being back at the piano. She used to play fairly regularly here. It's been a while, and it's just great to hear those dulcet tones coming from the piano once again. So we're grateful for that. As I hear the texts read, there's a harshness verbally that I don't hear when I'm reading them silently to myself. It's almost like an exorcism, isn't it? You know, I command you in the name of Jesus not to, not to associate with these people who are idle. It's, it's almost come out of them, you know, kind of thing. It's really, really strong. And we're going to come to that as we uh, look at, at how intensely the texts point us to something. You see, I'm a human being, and in my life and in my work, there are times I just get tired, fatigued, a sense of helplessness or hopelessness or uselessness sometimes about some aspect of something I'm doing. Frankly, there are times it feels like I tire in doing good. That's a sad admission. But I'm being honest with you. Fortunately, uh, there are so many who model for me a perseverance. And through the years as I've disciplined myself to keep going, uh, I've developed a perseverance of my own. And so that even in these times when I think uh, I'm, I'm weary of doing good, I realize that maybe it's just a nap I need. Maybe it's coffee with a friend. Maybe I need to take a day off. Maybe I need to read a book or go to a movie or do something. Maybe I'm really not in the end washed up and useless after all. Maybe God just is speaking to me in a different way. I watch the same thing happen in your lives. Some of you are even busier than I am. 
and my heart goes out to you. I know how hard you work. I know how hard it is then to come home and make anything matter in that sphere after giving your all for so much time to the workplace. I know how hard it is to be a student. And that's a little bit perceptual because I look back on student life as a pretty great time in my my life. But when you're in the middle of it, it feels difficult. It feels really hard sometimes. And so with all of the busyness and all of the worthwhile and not so worthwhile things that we take on in our lives, it's very easy to get to a point of saying, I just really don't have, have anything to give. I really, because I'm this busy, I am absolved of any obligation I might have had to do good. And we feel justified in that. I've got to earn a living. I've got to take care of my family. And so we, outside of work and a few things that we might do of necessity, we tire of doing good. Now, I am not, on the other hand, advocating that we run ourselves into the ground. There are seasons. If we listen to the wisdom of those around us, if we listen to the wisdom of the world as it's created, the cycles of Sabbath rest, the cycles of winter, spring, summer, fall, if we look at life in terms of seasons where we have different obligations and different possibilities and different limitations. We, we can shape our responses accordingly and should. So in my sermon this morning, I hope you aren't hearing me propose something that lacks the general wisdom of the rhythms of life. I want you to pay attention to those. Those are meaningful and valuable. Rest is okay. A season of life in which you can do more and not less is okay. A season of life in which you can do less and not more is okay. The thrust of the sermon isn't that. The thrust of the sermon is the Bible exhorts us, let us not weary or tire in doing good. So I want to take a look at a couple of our texts and just weave that together with you this morning. Because I know that as I have been here these nine years, I see some of you tiring of doing good. I see some burning out. I see some thinking that maybe what they do doesn't really matter. It isn't well attended or it isn't, it isn't what it used to be. But together we're called to be the body of Christ. Together we're called to serve one another in love. Together we're called to the weekly fellowship of the Spirit. Together we're tall, called to celebrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that has come to each of us. And we're a family. And so we have uh, no way to quit on each other. We belong one to the other. And we have to keep going, supporting and helping those who are most vulnerable and weak in the process. Our psalm today was just a very, very quick hint at something I think is really beautiful. The psalmist says in the midst of this uh, him, and we don't know the tune, but it was to the tune of Do Not Destroy, <laughs> to sort of put it in context, says, My heart is steadfast, O God, and he repeats it, My heart is steadfast. 
That's a word we don't use very often, isn't it? Bible uses it quite a bit, steadfast love. What it, what it means is that our heart is consistently locked on to the goodness of God. That's what that means. It doesn't waver. It's not fickle. There's no finitude. It is sure. And the psalmist says twice there, my heart is sure, my heart is steadfast, my heart is fixed on you. And then he says, I will rejoice, I will sing, I will make music. In other words, my heart is steadfast and I will worship. Now music isn't worship and worship music, but many times our response to God, our response to something is to lift ourselves in song. As a culture, we're very distanced from this, right? I mean, I, I watch you sing or not sing. I don't want to be hard on any of you because I know the truth. I know the truth is that so many of us were raised in educational systems in which there has been no music. We've been raised in impoverished uh, public or private educational systems that didn't realize that the human voice has to be trained. And that being able to join a cosmic song is something valuable for every human being. You go to any culture, any primitive, quote, primitive culture on earth, and they all know how to sing. They all know how to dance. They all know the rhythms of the culture. They all participate together around the fire or wherever it is. They all know the songs. Because they, we sing our values we sing what's important to us. And we've lost that as a culture. We've forgotten that. In our culture, there are many things that are more important. We're busy as a, a state trying to figure out how to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. Our scores were just barely up from two years ago, despite all the money and all the effort that's gone into the system. And educators are panicking. How do we teach our children? What we've forgotten is that our educational systems aren't sports programs with schools attached. What we've forgotten is that education is about creating a human being. You see, we're not born, we're socialized into human beings. That's the truth of our existence. That's why it takes 20, 22, 23 years to raise a child, 25 years, 27 in some cases. It takes that long to raise a child because human beings have to be acculturated. They have to be socialized. And we've abandoned the voice, the ability to respond. My grandpa was a wonderful man, very interesting man, always busy, but not in a frantic kind of way. He was the most paced and relaxed person I knew, but he was always making something or doing something always picking corn or checking his traps for the raccoons that ate his corn or cleaning his uh, workshop in his garage or making cupboards or at the community center helping a family or putting in cabinetry in a home that didn't have any or doing something, mowing his lawn. And everywhere he went, he was never fast, never running, tall man, 6'2", so he, he walked at a pretty good gait, but he whistled everywhere he went. 
just whistled constantly. Does everybody here know how to whistle? I do it so infrequently, I'm not sure I can do it anymore. I used to do it two or three different ways. I could whistle between my teeth, I could whistle <laughs> that kind of thing. And I could whistle whole like Vivaldi things that way when I was a teenager. And then of course the round lip whistle, uh, most of us are familiar with that. But when was the last time you whistled? Try it please, I wanna hear. Whatever you know how to do. No cat calls please, just, just whistling. There you go. See, I could never do that. That's this one I could never master. The one, two fingers, the one finger, the reed, whatever it was, I could never do that one. But what do we whistle? We whistle a song, usually, something that's running through our heads. So in this little psalm here, David is saying, my heart is true to you, and it's responding because I'm making music. I'm singing. I'm making music. My heart is lifted up. I'm worshiping. I think in Pathfinders, one of the mottos is keep a song in your heart. There's something very healing and very enriching and very warm and very meaningful about that. It's very difficult to carry hatred, envy, bitterness, tension, anger when you carry a song in your heart. Unless, of course, it's like some metal thing or, you know, some other head-banging piece, then maybe you can get some of those elements in there. Certainly, lust follows very well with those kinds of musical styles. Uh, they talk about nothing else, I think, but sex. So, anyway, um, having said all that, uh, here we have it. Awake my soul, awake harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. Poetry, right? Do we all get this? David is, is in, a, in a song here, it's a poem. And what is he saying in this last part? Not only is his heart steadfast, but as he sings and makes music, his soul is coming alive. Now what is the soul? The Bible speaks of it. Adventists aren't, aren't really uh, sure what the soul is because we're really sure about what the soul isn't, right? We know what it isn't, but what is it? Here's what it isn't. Let's go, to, let's go to home, let's figure out what it isn't because Adventists are good at this. What the soul isn't is something that's eternal that floats around and gets recycled. We're sure about that, right? We were born with a soul when we die. The air, which is the breath of life, the spirit goes back to the the God who gave it to us, the flesh, turns to dust from which it came, and there is no more soul, right? We've ceased to be living beings. Soul equals living being. All right, so we're, we're sure of what it isn't. It's not an eternal sort of ethereal entity. We're also pretty sure that the soul is not uh, consciousness, right? In other words, if it were eternal consciousness, that would be the way in which we went on forever, once we died, we would go to heaven as a soul, a sort of eternal consciousness, ethereal eternal consciousness, and would live forever in that state. But then what's the point of the resurrection? And what's the point of the second coming? You see, if that's the truth, then we don't need a resurrection and we don't need a second coming because everything that's essentially you, that is to say, your thoughts, your feelings, your dreams, 
your, e, your memories, your, you know, everything is locked up in sentience. The, 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 the sentience, I can't say that word anyway, thinking, uh, feeling, understanding, being that you would be, sentient being as a soul. So we know it's not that. We're good at defining those things out and saying how we're different from other Christians in that regard, but then we never talk about what the soul is. The soul is that piece that's integrative in our lives, bringing together body, mind, spirit into a unified whole. And this is wholeness which translates biblically to perfection, right? One aspect, when we talk about perfection, we think of sinlessness, and that is a definition. But another very important definition of perfection is wholeness, completeness. Seven is both the number of wholeness and completeness and perfection. Yes? So we have this completeness because our mind, our emotions, our spirits, our bodies all have been melded, reconciled to one another, brought into wholeness and unity. No divided life. The spirit lives in the same way in us that the body chooses to live and so forth. Now, this is Adventist holism at its best, isn't it? So when it says, awaken my soul, something is, is really powerfully happening in the life of the psalmist here. Because he's chosen to follow the path of God, because he's set his heart in a steadfast way and chosen to praise, chosen to worship, chosen to open himself up to this connection in music and in praise, now his soul is coming alive. Awake, my soul. Awake the harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. The imagery of new awareness. Well, what I wanted to focus on was the steadfastness because the steadfastness is what gets to us when we think about tiring of doing good. And so it's a matter of setting our intention and praising our God and letting the integrative work that the soul was meant to do, do as we turn that over to him, that it might bring us to wholeness and completion, and that we might see things differently, that a new dawn might awaken. Does this make any sense to you, or have I just kind of been rambling? You got it? Okay, so now we're going to go to a story, a little bit different kind of story. Judah and Israel were split into two separate kingdoms. Judah was the southern kingdom. Jerusalem was in the Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and a king named Asa came along. And Asa was a righteous king. He began all kinds of reforms because Judah wandered back and forth between the local Canaanite deities and the true God. They were constantly unfaithful and constantly moving to uh, the very sensual worship practices that surrounded them in the Canaanite region. And since Judah was in the southern portion of the kingdom, it was also closer to Egypt and closer to other countries where other foreign gods reigned. So Asa decided that he would end this. 
He basically purged the country of worship places to false gods and set his heart on the true God. He began a series of reforms that strengthened the state. First, with public works projects. Sound familiar? The public works project that he sponsored was the building of new walls and fortifications for all of the major cities within Judah. And so he began to strengthen up the empire. He had an army, a standing army, of roughly 580,000 men, 300,000 heavily armed foot soldiers, and 280,000 more lightly armed Benjamites who were archers. They were the, in, uh, you had the infantry, and you had the, um, what are the guys with the big guns called? In artillery, there we go. They were the artillery and the infantry. So he had these two pieces, and uh, there was peace in the land, the Bible says. He had chosen to follow the true God, and God rewarded him with peace during his time of reign. Only it didn't stay peaceful. The armies of Cush rallied and came after him. Now, we don't know where Cush is when when we think about it, because there's no country called that today, and we don't really think of uh, much when we hear the word Nubia either. But Cush and Nubia are in what's today modern-day Egypt, North Africa. And there was a period of time when black pharaohs ruled Egypt. Did you know that? There was a period of time when Cushites or Nubians ruled Egypt, even as pharaohs. And so it wasn't the native sort of Egyptian population there. There was an imposition, a new sort of uh, uh, kingdom that arose. And it was during the reign of one of these Nubian or, or Cushite kings that the war was declared on Judah. And so you can imagine uh, the sentries and spies that, that existed. Uh, they didn't have, as far as I know, a Mossad or an FBI or a CIA in the same way we do. But you can bet that they had people on the lookout for things, and probably many of them were Bedouins with their sheep and goats out in the Sinai and out in distant places who would then send runners or put people on a camel and send them to spread the news of an advancing army. The Cushites came with tank divisions. They came with 300 chariots. These were lightly armored chariots with horses pulling them. The speed was uh, stunning compared to what a foot soldier could produce. And I know that we are not in the habit of using these kinds of arms, but try to imagine, if any of you have been to camp and done archery, most of you are probably thrilled to pieces just to hit the target. Big old target, right? A few of you got good enough to hit the inside circles you know, a percentage of the time, and a couple of you may have gotten good enough to hit bullseyes with some consistency. But now imagine that you have to hit where armor isn't, or you have to hit in a key spot on a body, and that body is moving in a chariot at 35 miles an hour. And you are on foot or riding a horse or stationed up above the battlefield. It's very tricky business. A chariot was a fearsome piece of, of armor and equipment. 300 of them coming in. It was a devastatingly uh, lethal force coming in to take over Judah. Prayer was offered. 
And the Bible records for us that Judah routed the Cushites, routed them, and followed them all the way back to some of their cities, which they then in turn looted and decimated. So great wealth came to Asa and to the kingdom of Judah out of this failed conquest. So that's the context of our story. That's the context of our reading this morning as we get into Second uh, Chronicles. And I just want to uh, point to you in 15, 1-7, a couple of things going on here. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Obed. He went out to meet Asa. So he's the prophet now, Azariah. And said, listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. In those days, it wasn't even safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in turmoil, great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another, and one city by another, because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He finished the work, basically, that he'd begun to do. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple, and he assembled the people. This is an old story, and there are elements of it that might be ethically troubling to us today. I'm not going to go into those. You, you can sort those for yourself. But the powerful piece is, a prophet spoke, a king listened, the people turned to God, they set their intention and their hearts toward him, and good things happened in their lives and in their land. And Asa was encouraged not to grow tired of doing good, not to give up, not to abandon the reforms he had started, not to, not to yield to complacency, but to complete the vision, to complete the task that God had given him to do. What is the task God's given you to do? What is the vision he's set before you? What is it that God wants you to accomplish that you need to set your intention toward, make your heart steadfast toward, keep your eye on him toward, seek him for? This is the message, I think of the story of Asa for us today. We go to the New Testament, and our friend Paul dominates. Although James is wise. You know, James the Apostle spent his time uh, closer to the Jerusalem church and was one of the most powerful leaders in the early church. We're most familiar with his... Uh, work in James 5 where he says, is any of you in trouble, let him pray. You know, the calling of the elders together and so forth. We're most familiar with that. But just prior to that, we read these words. Be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming. 
There's the illustration of the crops, the exhortation, uh, and the way we should treat one another, the declaration that we will be judged as we judge. There's even an example. As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or earth or by anything, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you too will be condemned. And then it goes into the prayer of faith. So in the midst of this, the exhortation is to persevere. Now, the example is an interesting one. When we hear the story of Job, it seems a bit odd to us that God should allow an entire family, basically, to be decimated. Everything a man had taken from him but his life. And then to consider that all is well because everything is restored. We don't view human life that way. We don't view family that way. A loss of this magnitude can't be restored. There's something in this story that doesn't resonate with us because of the way in which we see the structure of family and life in our culture today. But I want to assure you that our God is not capricious, however he may appear in this particular passage. He longs to be generous with all of us. He longs for us to persevere and to complete that which we've begun. And so whether it's your Christian walk or whether it's some other aspect of what you've been called to do, God encourages you, challenges you, exhorts you, blesses you to hang in there, to keep going, to keep doing. I could have called this sermon The Power of Showing Up, We think of perseverance as a little too hard. Anybody think of perseverance as hard? I do. I don't know if I can persevere. That's a little bit hard. How about showing up? I can do that. I can do that. Showing up is 90% of the battle. Did you know that? You don't feel like going to work? What happens when you show up? Do you work? Maybe not as efficiently as you might if you'd felt like going to work, but you work. Showing up was 90% of it. That's, that's, what it. that's what it takes. That's what our journey with God is about. It's about showing up. Staying with it. Continuing to be his people, whatever we feel like. Whatever discouragement, whatever obstacle, whatever concern. James alone doesn't speak. Thessalonians has a warning for us too. And I don't want to read that whole passage and focus on the those who work eat. But I want you to hear verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, brothers and sisters... Never tire in doing what is right. Never tire in doing what is right.
doesn't say, never tire of doing what is easy. It says, never tire of doing what's right. In our communities, in our homes, in our spiritual lives, in every aspect of our journey, we're called to hang in there. Because the day of his coming is sure. And he brings his reward with him. And as the passage says elsewhere, run as if to win the prize. Discipline yourself so that when the day comes, you may receive the crown, the inheritance, the reward. Let us never tire of doing good. And so, Lord, keep us steadfast, focused, true, engaged on the journey. For we would be your people now and forevermore. Amen.